Katie Tregidden, and this is Circular, a podcast exploring the intersection of craft, design and sustainability. Join me as I talk to the thinkers, doers and makers of the circular economy. These are the people who are challenging the linear take-make-waste model of production and consumption and working towards something better. In this series, we're talking about waste. I worked with a friend of mine who's uh, also at the time was studying the furniture degree that we were doing called Ronald. And he went over, he went to go and choose a chair and I brought a chair. Over. My chair was from someone that I'd known really well, but you know, he was a bit of a naughty boy. So I think what was interesting about that chair was that that chair had seen and had been, been experienced and immersed in so many sort of, I don't know, like legal activities. So that was interesting for me, that chair in that context. And then there's this other guy, you know, my friend Ronald, he worked in a pub and, you know, he got this chair from a pub and, you know, again, a pub is in also is in a, in, a, is in a different environment. So these two chairs from who's been in sort of different worlds coming together to form a new identity blew my mind away. I first met Yinka Alori at Restoration Station in London's Shoreditch, where he had worked with people in recovery from addiction to create a collection of joyful, colourful and optimistic furniture Yinka is a London-based artist who specialises in storytelling by fusing his British and Nigerian heritage to create new narratives in contemporary design. He began his practice in 2011, upcycling vintage furniture inspired by traditional Nigerian parables and West African fabrics that surrounded him as a child. Humorous, provocative and fun, each piece he creates tells a story, bringing Nigerian verbal traditions into playful conversation with contemporary design. He established his eponymous studio in 2017 following a successful pitch to transform the Thessaly Road Bridge and now employs a team of colour-obsessed architects and designers with whom he is taking on increasingly large-scale architectural and interior design projects. The studio continues to experiment with the relationship between form and function with an output that sits between traditional divisions of art and design. To borrow a phrase from our mutual friend Sabine Zettler, he is also one of my favourite humans. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and what role both creativity and the idea of waste or reuse played when you were growing up. Um, so I grew up in a sort of you know a big sort of council estate in um, in North London, and you know my parents you know were were born and raised in Nigeria, so you know I, from a young age I was you know like uh, sort of. You know, introduced to so much culture and identity in, in, an, in an area that was in you know, a working class kind of environment. So we had to make the best of what we have. So, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't really like, we weren't buying Nike trainers every week or every month. It was, you know, if you had a pair of trainers, you had to make sure they lasted you for at least, you know, like four or five months, at least like half of the, half of the term. So clothes that we wore, we had to make sure we sort of reuse and recycle and, and just make sure this would last long. I remember my mum and dad actually, um, would always buy us, I'm sure every parent, but maybe every parent, maybe our parents did this, they would probably buy us like clothes that were sort of two sizes bigger than us. Yeah. So we would sort of wear it from like, I don't know, sort of year seven to year nine and it pretty works really well. But I think when I went to Nigeria for the first time, that was the thing, the first time I, I sort of was aware of like sustainability and the idea of like recycling and sort of, you know, using objects that are around you okay. to, to form, you know, like objects in your home or you know, objects formed as seating or shelving and that kind of thing. So that was my kind of 
It was around, around like 11 or 12 years old. Mm. When you say using objects, you mean using objects for a purpose that they weren't necessarily intended for? Yeah, exactly. So people would maybe use, let's say, like concrete blocks as like, and build them, build, build them up as seating. Or maybe people would sort of use, I don't know, um, like old fabrics that they used to sort of wear as upholstery. Right. So just the idea of old tyres, like, you know, you'd see children sort of using like old tyres that they might, you know, that you might see in, my, in a village or in my parents' village and then use them as, as forms of play or, or as forms of seating. So that was interesting to sort of see like how, you know, people were able to sort of use everyday objects around them and sort of recycle them to use them, you know, as, as part of, the, you know, as, as design objects, you know? So, yeah. And that, that idea of kind of adaptive reuse, I think, yeah, is, is yeah, fascinating. Yeah. You've said that in your work, you aim to tell your parents stories. Tell me a little bit about your parents and your grandparents, because you talk about them a lot too. I do. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, like when it comes to my parents, I think they, you know, grew up in Nigeria, came to the UK. They've been there for around like nearly over 30 years. So I think one of the things I've always sort of found like fascinating and also like there was also a bit of jealousy coming I mean, from my parents was that they were born in Nigeria. So they had so much kind of culture and that they, you know, they would, they were always, always sort of telling us about. And I never could really connect with those stories because I wasn't, I didn't grow up in Nigeria, but it always sounded so special. So I don't know, just so really meaningful and powerful. And, and sometimes when someone's sort of telling you a story, it's hard for you to, to kind of relive that story unless you experienced it. So I think for me, like I saw my parents, you know, like wear, you know, you know, Swiss voile lace and Dutch rats prints and, you know, like fabrics, you know, from Nigeria on a day to day basis. And, you know, they would wear it in like in, in spaces that weren't predominantly, you know, like full of Nigerian or African people. So for me, that was that showed how proud they were and how unapologetic they were of their culture, which I think for me was like so powerful, you know, as a, as a young kid to see. So when you sort of, when you're sort of like, when you experience that type of power and, and love of your culture, you know, you want to, you want to emulate that, you know, and you want to understand it more and understand like, what is it that they love so much? And it made sense to me, you know, like, you know, people gave them respect when they wore, you know, their traditional, you know, Nigerian attire because it was who they were and what they represented. So people were interested and people were also, you know, they wanted to ask questions, you know, maybe some people did laugh and thought, oh, like, why are they wearing that head tile? Why are they wearing those really crazy, colourful colours? But when people spoke to them and understood why and like who and what they were and why they were wearing those colours, I think people gave them respect. And I think that's the power of, of, of colour and identity and, and culture. You know, people, it, it does give, it gives you respect. And I think that's one of the things I think I wanted to try to, you know, bring through into my work. Yeah. Mm, that's wonderful. And I love the things we learn from watching our parents rather than necessarily the things they tell us to do. You know, there's a sort of there's a there are embodied behaviors, I think, that we we learn from our families in that way. Yes, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I think, you know, we I grew up in a really sort of strict Nigerian household. So we were told, you know, taught you know, our sort of cultural values, like really early on from when we were like born. And, and that, that sort of, you know, went down from like respecting your eldest and, you know, going to church and, you know, like getting, getting educa an edu an education. And then also, you know, like not being in trouble with the police and not, you know, doing you know, all the wrong things that, you know, like that was around us. Cause you know, in our, in our, in my environment, there weren't a lot of positive role models, you know, my only role models were my, you know, were my siblings and my, my parents and, you know, a few family friends and cousins. But, you know, when you sort of leave home and you go to school, you know, you're like, 
you experience a different world when you're on that walk to school and on the way back, you know, because at home you're kind of, you know, you're kind of protected and you're safe. But when you go out into the real world, you know, it's, it's like, it's not as, it's not as safe as when you're at home, you know? So, yeah. Mm. And how did that show up, that sense of kind of the different influences outside of the home? Um, it, oh God, it, it showed up in sort of in, 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 in different ways. I think when you go, you know, you, I went to an all boys school, so you, you know, you see you know, most of your peers sort of end up in jail or end up, you know, sort of selling drugs or just doing, you know, the things that, you know, what things that not what their sort of parents imagined their kids would be doing or be involved in when they sort of left, you know, their their country, their, their hometowns. Mm. So I think my parents' idea for us was to be successful, you know, get an education and not, you know, not, not end up, you know, them going to see us in the prison cell or see us, you know, I don't know, in the wrong, in that, in the wrong places because those things were so easy and accessible, you know, in this state we grew up in. So I, I always feel like I'm really grateful for my parents and sort of how strict they were because, you know, it's so easy for me to, to sort of be a different person. But, you know, there were also people in my school who were so successful who, you know, were actors and, you know, have played in like huge, you know, like uh, acted in sort of huge British films that, you know, you may have seen and friends might have seen. So there was a lot of talent in my school, but, you know, there was also, you know, some people who didn't have that passion and dream. So I remember sort of in my early sort of years of, of secondary school, I, you know, when you're young, you want to sort of, you know, you're a bit of a, you know, you're a bit cheeky and a bit sort of, you know, naughty. And I thought when I got to year eight, I was like, no, like I need to make sure I get, you know, get my education. I make sure I be someone and not let my parents down because they've, you know, sacrificed everything for us and leaving their parents and cousins and families and houses and good jobs to give us a different narrative and different, you know, different opportunity. So, mm, yeah. And I guess being such strong role models in terms yeah. of kind of celebrating their culture must have been really important as well. Yeah, totally. It was massive for them, you know, because I think for them is that, you know, you know, the thing is that about having two cultures is that you can, you can, you're born here. So automatically you're British, you know, mm. but if you're sort of born in Nigeria, it's obviously very different because you're going to be a Nigerian citizen. So... We, you know, I have two passports. I have a British and also a Nigerian passport. So I have the best of both worlds. But for me, it was very important to never forget, you know, like my Nigerian roots and make sure I visit Nigeria every year or maybe like four times a year. And, you know, for me, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a kid growing up as well, it's really hard to, to celebrate both of those cultures. Maybe harder to celebrate my Nigerian culture because when you're presented in the media with so much negativity from, you know, like, not only Nigeria, but also presented, you know, like negativity from other parts of like West Africa or like, or the continent, you know, that's all you're seeing is, I don't know, like, like not positive news. So you automatically, you have this narrative in your head that you're presented with. But when you, when I went there for the first time, I was just like, this is incredible. Like, I feel like I've missed out on so much. And sometimes, so the reason why, you know, for me, I try to sort of bring in my heritage is that I feel like I've missed out on so much, you know, and that's just to do with like what, you know, the media have sort of presented. But then also like, it's your parents obviously tell you like how like beautiful your culture is. And sometimes you sometimes just feel like, oh, your parents are just saying that because you want to experience it yourself. And your parents will always tell you something different from, from I don't know. I, yeah, but I felt like I, I had to go there myself to see it, see the real truth. Yeah. And I was just blown away. I was like, wow, like how do I celebrate my culture that I feel like I've missed out on for so like for you know, like some of my sort of teenage years and how do I celebrate it? And that was the only way I could do that was to tell narratives based on things my parents told me. 
and also just purely by the, the, how much color and this power of storytelling and, and, and how do I bring that in my work. So, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that this idea of kind of adaptive reuse was something you saw for the first time, the first time you visited Nigeria. Yeah. You studied furniture design at London Met in the 2000s. How much yeah. was sustainability and reuse and those sort of ideas on the agenda there? If I'm honest with you, it, it wasn't a big on the agenda then. I don't know what it is. I think, you know, obviously we're having a lot more of a bigger conversation around sustainability and, you know, uh, upcycling and, you know, and everyone's a lot more aware now. But when I was doing my degree, that wasn't a conversation we had at all. We were producing, you know, like different types of, we were working with resin and, you know, using different sorts of materials that weren't environmentally friendly. So that wasn't, I wasn't a conscious designer, I don't think then at all. But if I'm honest with you, and I always, you know, I always reference Martino Gampan, I think that was the first time I, you know, was sort of questioning what I was designing and also understanding the impact and power of sustainability and recycling. Yeah, so, so tell me about the Martino Gampa project that inspired you and, and what it was specifically that caught your imagination. Yeah, yeah, I think that was a really powerful project. I mean, it was set by my tutor who's called Jane Atfield. So Jane Atfield is also a practicing designer. I'm not sure if she's still designing now, but at the time she had produced this chair, which is in a V&A. If you probably Google it, Jane Atfield chair and V&A, she, she produced this recycled, this sort of plastic recycled chair that was incredible I think maybe one of the first designers to do it actually and then she set us a brief that was called Our Chair and on the brief you know I've still got the brief at home actually because I I just thought it's one I'm going to probably frame up because it really did sort of change and sort of did you know help me in my career and gave me my yeah. career that brief and on the brief was Martina Gamper's project called 100 Chairs in 100 Days so you know the brief was to you know go and find two objects and you had to use redesign this object, both objects, but you had to use every component in this, you know, in, in these chairs to create a new narrative and a new, and give it a new function. At the time I thought, how the hell am I gonna do that? You know, and I thought, this is impossible. But I worked with a friend of mine who's uh, also at the time was studying the furniture degree that we were doing with Ronald. And he went, uh, he went to go and choose a chair and I brought a chair. And my chair was from someone that I'd known really well, but you know, he was a, bit of a naughty boy so I think what was interesting about that chair was that that chair had seen and had been been experienced and immersed in so many sort of I don't know like legal activities so that was interesting for me <laughs> that chair in that context and then this other guy you know my friend Ronald who worked in a pub and you know he got this chair from a pub and you know again a pub is in also is in a, in, a, is in a different environment so these two chairs who's been in sort of different worlds coming together to form a new identity blew my mind away I was like you know, like, how is that? That's, that's crazy that, you know, two objects and you can sort of recreate a new narrative and tell new stories. And the power about that is that, you know, these stories can be shared or cannot, or maybe you may, you might not want to share them. So that was the first time that I sort of thought of shares as more than, more than shares. Also saw them as like really powerful objects that can, I don't know, really kind of like have so much power and depth, you know, in society, but also in a public space, whether it's in a gallery or an exhibition uh, environment. Um, and it also allows, you know, users to, I don't know, sort of experience an object in a very different way than an object that's been sort of mass produced on, I don't know, a hundred or two, or maybe more, a thousand times than this kind of one-off piece that's been, you know, like sourced from a place that, you know, you may, you may not be ever to kind of go to or never experienced but I'm giving you the opportunity to, to kind of experience 
a chair in a sort of different context. Mm, I have to say, I think that book was the first design book I ever bought. So I'm with you on the on the power of Martino Gamba and his hundred chairs. So powerful. Um, so, so powerful. Um, so you still work with uh, sort of discarded and upcycled chairs. My question is, yeah. where do you find them and where do you store them all? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Well, when I was starting out, I started with sort of like like three chairs. That was probably the first kind of collection that I produced and did did in my garden. And I remember at the time when I was sort of starting out, I had no studio. I was sort of working in my back garden. And I remember sort of going around London, just picking up chairs anywhere and anywhere in London on mm. the bus. So I would see, I'd be on the bus, let's say the bus 43 or the bus, so I used to live in Angel, um, Islington at that time. So I'd be on the bus 38. And I would probably go through like, uh, like Angel to, I don't know, sort of, like Holborn and you would just see chairs in like really unusual places in corners like by skip mm. I would get off the bus and pick up the chair and take it and put it in the <laughs> put it in the kind of the whatever the buggy area where the parents have to sort of sit with their children and yeah. I remember getting some like really uncomfortable looks from people thinking <laughs> what is this guy doing why has he got chairs in his hand and, and, and blah 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 but I was obsessed with chairs I remember my parents were like getting quite angry with me and frustrated with the amount of chairs that I had so, yeah, but they, they never understood the kind of life I had for, for furniture. But what I would do was basically just sort of go around London collecting all the bits of furniture and just taking them in my, sort of in my shed at home or in my bedroom, which was really small. So I just, just had a, enough space to sort of sleep on my bed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I've got this lovely image of you, kind yeah. of barely enough space to sleep because your space is piled up with chairs. I was obsessed. And tell me what process they go through to turn into your collections. What do you do to them to turn them from these sort of discarded chairs to the beautiful, colourful collections that you make with them? Sure, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a, my process is probably very different from like how we were taught in school. And when we, obviously when I went to university, we would sort of always talk to sort of sketch an idea and sort of like develop the process like for, based on the sketch. But my way of working has changed when I, especially when I, when I work with, uh, upcycled furniture, um, and the objects that I find. And my process starts with sort of like buying these two bits of furniture, buying how many I buy anyway. And then what I do is I sort of deconstruct the chair in my head. So as I'm walking into the studio, as I'm in the studio, I'm already sort of like dismantling the chair. Imagine like you get a kind of, imagine you're designing a piece of furniture and you have, you have this kind of isometric view that's exploded of all the kind of components. I don't know if you can sort of visualize it, but that's how I work, how my head works. And I'm sort of breaking the legs and the back and everything else into like, into sections. So when I do that, then I, I go back to paper and then I go back to sort of 3D modeling and then start to design it. But I always try to avoid sketching any kind of concept because I feel like if I sketch the idea, I always feel like I put pressure on myself and feel like, okay, that's what you've produced as a sketch. You have to design it and make it now. Whereas mm. if I'm making mistakes as I go, I always feel the mistakes that I've made. I've made mistakes along my way in, in my career, in my designs. And they have been the most beautiful things that have come out of, of my process, the mistakes. So I, I think, yeah, my process is basically sort of coming into the studio, sort of drawing it in my head. And then whatever I've sort of drawn in my mind, in my head is what I try to sort of like create. And if mm. I make mistakes along the way, then that's fine. So that's the first process. And the second process is trying to understand the narrative and, and what kind of parable that I would like to sort of tell. So it kind of works hand in hand with the parable. The parable might be about love or identity or about, you know, like jealousy and about greed. 
And these are all to do with my upbringing and inheritance, and these are things my parents told us when we were kids, these Nigerian parables. So it, it, it sort of works hand in hand together. I think I'd probably start off with the parable, first of all, and then head into the construction process of what I want to say in this piece. And then the fabric comes in, um, and then the colours come in. So it's, it's, all, it's, it's all like a kind of like... Imagine making like jollof rice. <laughs> <laughs> And then you've got the rice, you've got the, you've got the seasoning, you've got the Maggi sauce, you've got the, the scotch bonnets, and then you mix the pot. So that's what it's, that's what it's like. That, that, is a good, that is a good comparison. It's like making jollof rice, yeah. <laughs> I like that analogy. After the break, Yinka tells me why a charity collaboration with Restoration Station is the most meaningful project he's ever worked on, how his colour palace was repurposed into planter kits for school children, and why he now has reuse and legacy written into his contract. You're a designer maker. Here's what I want you to know. None of this is your fault. Climate change, ocean acidification, falling biodiversity levels, none of it. But you do get to be part of the solution. And the best part, that gets to be creative, collaborative, and filled with wide-eyed curiosity. Remember that? Visit katietregiddon.com forward slash membership and leave your eco guilt at the door. Find a community of fellow travellers, clear, actionable steps you can take today and all the support you need to join the circular economy. Visit katietregiddon.com forward slash membership. I'll see you there. So tell me about your If Chairs Could Talk project specifically. I did that collection in 2015. And I remember at the time I was a little bit frustrated with, with the industry and just under trying to, because no one I felt at the time was really got what I was trying to do. Mm. And I was, I remember sort of doing my sort of graduate show and designing some pieces and I thought, oh, this is not, this is not really me. I don't really, I don't really see Yinka in these pieces and I don't really see my culture in these pieces. And I, I always felt like I was trying to design for a particular kind of audience. And I felt that wasn't the right way of designing. Mm. So I wanted my work to be to be a, a bit more meaningful. I, you know, I saw my work as yes furniture, but I also saw my work as pieces of art as well. Mm-hmm. And there was that kind of cross between the two. So that collection in 2015 was a point in my career and life where I felt, okay, if no one gets this collection and it doesn't do what I wanted to do, then I might probably stop designing and try and find an option B. <laughs> and that was where I was at the time, 2015. So at the time I was working in Jigsaw, and you know working in retail and the shop at Bluebird as you know I don't know if you know anyway they sort of they own they're like one company so they offered me an opportunity to, to kind of do you know an exhibition during LDF in their concept store in Chelsea on the King's Road so I wanted to tell it a narrative based on people that I grew up with and the, the parable behind that collection was called no matter how long the neck of a giraffe is it still can't see the future and I remember you know like we, we grew up in a, in a society where people are constantly judging people and having misconceptions of people based on either their insecurities or what people have told them about someone. So you automatically have this, you know, idea of someone, oh, that he's a a burglar or he's a this or they or she's a that, you know? Mm. And we all do it, you know, like everyone does it subconsciously, but, you know, it's just kind of like, I don't know, it's just something that we will do. Um, And I I think it's terribly wrong. And I think with this collection, I wanted to basically design a collection of five pieces of chairs that were based on five people that I grew up with and tell their story. And these are based on real life people 
who were friends of mine. Mm. And in, some of these people went on to be actors and lawyers and some people went into, you know, into jail and, and that's been their life since school. That's, they've been in and out of, you know, of the kind of, you know, the police system. And because that's, they haven't really got anything else to sort of look forward to. And, you know, they've, they, they've sort of lost that, I know, like hope, you know, in the system, hope in society. So I wanted to, I wanted to sort of tell, you know, those stories and, you know, I think sometimes these stories are, are forgotten and people don't really, really talk about this. Maybe now and more than ever, we're talking a lot more about things that are really important in society. But I think for me, these were pieces of art and I wanted to sort of tell these, these narratives based on these people. And the collection did so well that, you know, they, you know, went on to travel, like, you know, someone at the Brighton Museum now have it, have one in their permanent chair collection in their museum. And then one of the chairs went on to, to, on loan to the Victor Design Museum and has traveled to Guggenheim and Bilbao and, you know, other sort of like, you know, like amazing and, um, and powerful, um, uh, museums. So for me, that like collection is like really to change my, like life and really put me on a map of design, um, and also put me on the radar to a lot, onto a lot of different sectors, not just only design, but like fashion and, but yeah, it was, you know, a project that, I'm, I'm so proud of it and, 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 and one that I'll never forget because it, you know, it paved the way for me. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not bad for a collection that you thought might be your last. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. I was, I was just, I spent so much money, you know. You know, I think, another thing I think people forget about when you're a designer or any sort of creative, you know, it's, you, know you, you are essentially investing in yourself. Like you are your own, you know, your own investor. Mm. Unless you have external investment. But, you know, you, I put every penny that I you know, sort of saved up from, you know, college and university. You know, I didn't, I didn't get any loans up from, you know, during my university. So I sort of just kept saving and saving and saving and sort of invested in, in this business that, you know, I didn't know would, would be like this now. But I just hoped one day I could, you know, make a living off of it. Yeah. I'm very glad it paid off. So after that, you collaborated with Restoration Station. Is that the first time we met? I feel like it is. I think it is, yes. That was the first time we did, actually. Yeah. yeah. I can remember trying to take a photo of you and you were being extremely yes. camera shy. <laughs> I was, yes, yes. It's totally still am camera shy. Yeah, I was going to say, are you more confident now or do you still hate the camera? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was actually funny, actually. That was a, do you know what? Again, that project, I've done projects quite a few kind of, you know, small collabs over the years. and But I think that one for me was the most rewarding, the most, like, the most meaningful one I think I've ever done. And I say that because... I could, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't, I can't say I can put myself in their shoes, like the people that I was working with, you know, the, you know they work with ex-addicts and not just only ex-addicts, but people who have been through trauma and, and different things, you know, that I could never understand or I, mean, I try to understand, but I can never say to them, oh, I, you know, I, I've been there before and, but I could connect to them on a different level because I've experienced things in my life and I've experienced things with other people that maybe, you know, I could relate to it in, in some way or some shape. Mm. But I think for me that, you know, what was really powerful about that was that, you know, the guys really, you know, people, the guys that worked with trusted me and trusted me to sort of be in their space and, and hear their story, you know, which is very personal and also, you know, for some people, you know, really hurtful and painful. Mm. And I, as I, I'm sure, you know, there are some things that they don't want to really want to remember because it was, it was an old time in their life. But also you, you want to celebrate that because you've come through something that was really tough. You know, mm. so I know this is probably unrelevant, un- but I was watching, you know, a, a interview by sort of Kanye West. He was talking to, uh, I'm sure, a sort of music a sort of editor or, or reporter, and he was saying, you know, he went through a breakdown and a breakdown like a couple of years ago. He was saying people call it a breakdown, 
but he would call it a breakthrough. And I thought that was quite powerful because, you know, like, yeah, it was a breakthrough. You know, you've come from something, you've beat something, you know. So I think for me, that was such a powerful project that I got to work with them and, you know, like, again, work with, you know, Sabine and the whole Zeta team, who I love dearly, and just be part of that project. So, and yeah, again, so- the project done well, amazing work. Yeah, just to give our listeners a bit of context, Restoration Station are part of the Spitalfields Crip Trust. And as you said, yeah. they work with people in recovery from complex drug and alcohol addictions to restore furniture. And you collaborated with them to create a collection for the London Design Festival. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah thank you. That's, thank you for the introduction. And... I mean, with, with that process, I sort of worked with them, I think for around, I think it was about two weeks or maybe, maybe more than a week. I just remember actually, but we sort of, you know, we looked at my process and sort of wanted to get them to sort of tell a bit of their narrative in the pieces as well and sort of understand how, how you do that. Mm. But yeah, it was, it was so nice to sort of see like them really enjoy it and also understand the importance of storytelling and how, you know, how powerful, you know, these objects are. And I think the most exciting thing for me about the collaboration was seeing people like on the day bid and auction and just see how people sort of bidding for their shares and see how excited they were as well mm. that was amazing and then now I think I think some of them actually maybe still doing it now I don't know I haven't really got in touch back with them but I would love to work with Restoration again I'm always trying to say to him let's try and do something next time or next year off ODF but I mean hopefully one day we can sort of do it on a bigger yeah, I've interviewed some of the volunteers there and I've been fascinated by the metaphor they describe in creating new value for something that's been discarded or unwanted and their yeah. own recovery journey, the sort of the, the way they're trying to find their own sense of value and the idea that it's okay to make mistakes and, and repair them or that journeys aren't yeah. always linear. Is that something you found in your conversations with them? 100%, you know, and I feel like, you know, we we live in a you know in a in a society where, and I think if you make a mistake, people sometimes sort of like blacklist you or you're kind of like cancelled. And mm. but I feel like you know, like with friends I grew up with and, and and places that I grew up in, that hasn't always been the case, and that that shouldn't be the case, you know. But yeah, I feel like there are some similarities in things that I've experienced and things that we've spoke about when we were sort of doing the workshops. That you know, like you can make mistakes and you can you know you can change your life around and you can you know fixed mistakes nothing isn't unfixable like things are fixable and I think that's something you know that when I'm working or I'm always remembered I always remember myself to allow myself to make mistakes because you know we, we know in the, in the studio we make mistakes I'm never I'm never really angry with with people because like we're human like that's like the part that's the, what's the beauty we can make mistakes and we can fix them you know, we can make things better so so yeah and as you say often some of the most beautiful outcomes come from mistakes totally totally so I always kind of encourage my team and I encourage myself to make mistakes. I don't really understand the idea of perfection, like what is perfection? Like I've never really, haven't found perfection. I don't know if I'll ever find perfection. So I try to, you know, appreciate the imperfections that life, you know, provides and gives us and just make them, just try and make the world a better place. That's all we can do. We can't, Nothing's ever going to be perfect. That was, is, I don't think, is is it possible to find perfection? I don't know. And it's about, as you say, kind of care and repair and giving people and things a second chance. Yeah, totally. And, and, and you know, I've, I've seen, you know, so many friends and I think it just depends on like, on what the second chance is. You know, there are, there are some things that, you know, is, is, is based around the sort of long conversation and understanding. But again, I'm always for second chances and understanding and, and the, the willingness to sort of learn and listen and, you know, yeah, but I, yeah, I'm very, 
all four second chances. Mm. Now, I might be stretching this metaphor here, but do you think there's something in the notion that if we treat the objects and the materials around us with more care, we're treating ourselves with more care as well? The idea that we don't need to save the planet as much as we need to save ourselves. No, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, it's like if you're going to eat fish and chips every day or eat sweets every day, you might likely as you're going to get ill and get spots, you know, or not feel great. So I think, yeah, if we, you know, sort of, you know, try to, you know, I mean, I'm still learning. I try and do as much as I can when it comes to recycling or, you know, putting the waste, or putting the, you know, the, the, the cardboard boxes and plastic in a recycling bin, you know, I, I get it wrong sometimes. They were human, you know. Mm. But, you know, I think if as long as we try and do our bit and try and do our bit for the environment, then, yeah, you know, we're going to definitely live in a, you know, a, a better place and, you know, that will, you know, we get to breathe, you know, like better air and, and, and I don't know. I love walking. I remember, you know, during lockdown when it was, where you, you couldn't, no one was driving and no one was really out and about. I used to go for walks and it was like one of the most amazing, like cleanest walks I've ever had mm. because no one was driving. There was no, you know, like, yeah, it was, it was more nicer. But I think, I don't know, I think because life is so fast and we're always at a quick pace, I think we sometimes put, that's always something we sort of put, put like as a second in, in, in our lives. And we just want to get stuff done and get done really quickly and come home and relax and, sustainability or, or like being more eco-friendly isn't always at the top of our list but when life is slower I'm sure as you know like you know like things like we really care more about the environment which is interesting mm. you know? I think there's real power in slowing down you're working on much larger scale projects these days so the, the Colour Palace for Dulwich Picture Gallery Get Up Stand Up Now at Somerset House and Playland yeah. at the Cannes Film Festival which are all amazing by the way does waste or the idea of reuse still play a role in your work and will it do so in the future? Yeah that's a very good question because I remember when we did the Colour Palace we were trying to obviously find someone to buy it and sort of reinstall it somewhere but it was costing like £50,000, I think, at the time to take it down and have a ring store, then also trying to take it somewhere else. It was mm. a lot of money, you know, to, you know, to, to throw the insulation and transportation. So what happened was that we, um, these architects, they took the Kali Palace and then they took the sort of, sort of the cladding, um, the sort of timber slats and redesigned them into sort of like plant beds for like schools, um, which is really interesting actually. And so, they sort of provided this sort of DIY kit for like the, the kids in the schools to build their own sort of like plant bed in the schools. So not only was it like did we recycle or upcycle, but then also it became quite educational that they sort of because you know you, you sometimes find like in schools like DMT is like quite boring. Like you always all you make is a box or a clock or I don't know. It's not really exciting. But the fact that they this this color palace has a the legacy continues, like it's grown yeah. into something else. So that's quite nice. It has a longer legacy. But in most projects that I do from now on, and what I've been doing for the last year or two, is when I get commissioned by any commissioner, part of my contract with them is that the objects have an afterlife. There is nothing you know, in my contract that says this ends up in a skip or a bin. Uh, if, if they don't have a, an option B, then I don't really take part in the projects. Mm. So, for example, Colour Palace went on somewhere else. You know, get up, stand up now. You know, we did some merchandise and that went on so that people bought the, people bought the merchandise we did. The projects for Cannes is likely going to be re recycled and reused for another project we're doing in London, for another sort of playground project, which might be a permanent one. And then I got some of the objects from the Cannes project for Pinterest in my studio. So I've got a mini kind of playground in my office. Yeah, a little fun time. So I, I try to, you know, make sure that one of the projects with the, that are really big and it's very like production heavy, 
that we understand that we need to find a sort of, you know, like a solution for these objects and there's an afterlife. So it's something yeah. we're very conscious about that now. I think so many people are making things from kind of reused or recycled materials, but then not thinking about the afterlife. And I think that's so important at the yes. point of design to think about what happens afterwards. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think, and I think, I think that which I find tough is always that obviously, you know, with things that are, you know, working with like recycled materials, whether it's from like people like small plastics or, or Durap or any, who else makes recycled plastic or materials is that they can be quite expensive. And I think sometimes, you know, the clients don't really want to pay, you know, for those recycled you know, materials. But I think, yeah, you're right. It's also really important to, to kind of consider the afterlife of these, these materials or these, or these objects because it's like the, 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 the kind of the idea of like using recycled materials is then sort of wasted when you sort of thrown it away or there's no kind of option B. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, there's, no, there's no point really. So what do you think the future holds? Are you hopeful? I'm very hopeful. Yeah, I think um, I think you know it's been a it's been a crazy few months. You know, I'm very hopeful for the future, not just only um, in design. Um, I think yeah, design, fashion. I think also if you look at fashion as well, I think they've got something that they need to look at how you know because they're not the most sustainable industry as well. You know, but I feel like you know things are going to be a lot slower. I mean, you know, there won't be any sort of fashion shows. I, I, I mean, I'm hearing. People are not going to be producing collections as quick as they used to produce collections, you know. So I'm hopeful for like our, you know, our, our society, you know, the world we live in. And yeah, I'm, I'm actually like for the first time ever really like hopeful and excited because of the conversation and the, the, the kind of chats I'm having now with people now are really positive, and empowering, and they feel like they feel fair. So I'm, I'm excited for the future. Good. That's good to know. Thank you so much, Inka. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Do you know what? You, I've done these like before and, and you've asked some good questions, you know, really made me think. So thank you for this. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Circular with Katie Tregidden, can I ask you to leave a review and perhaps even hit the subscribe button? Those two actions really help other people to find the podcast. So I would be very grateful. Thank you. Thank you to Yinka Elori. Gordon Barker for the edit, October Communications for marketing support, Sound Compound for the music, and to you for joining me. You've been listening to Circular with Katie Tregidden. Mm-hmm.